0: Into this building this morning. My name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors. Thanks to Jason for sharing his spiritual gift of self-deprecation, which is just hilarious. Um, gets me alert and ready to go. Um, uh, glad that you guys are with us. Um, if you're if you're new, um, you have entered into uh, a sermon series. Uh, As we work our way through a book of the Bible that is quite complex we're we're working through the book of Daniel right now as a church um, which is a book that invites us to wrestle with a number of provocative questions I would say questions uh, of of God's sovereignty and goodness Um, questions uh, having to do with what it means to engage culture for the sake of the gospel. Uh, questions uh, of what it means to trust in God's plan for our lives. Is he really at work, even in what appears to be the mundane, the insignificant? Uh, Questions that, if we're honest, uh, we all wrestle with at times. and, And it's just a matter of which season of life we're in as to which of those questions we find ourselves wrestling with. And so the book of Daniel is God's grace to us. It's a weapon to be added to our arsenals, a weapon to be to be wielded, uh, wielded like a sword in those moments when uh, doubt and unbelief arise in our lives, which happens again and again. Um, this book of the Bible, I've said it before, in every book of the Bible, it is not meant to lead just to the obtaining of information, but rather information that when obtained actually leads to gospel transformation. So that's what we're after as a church. And so if you are new or maybe you, you missed a week somewhere along the way or you were serving on that rotation in our kids' ministry, this is for you previously on Daniel, okay? Here's where we've come thus far. The book of Daniel opens up. God's people have been exiled from Judea uh, into this pagan wasteland known as the Babylonian Empire. Uh, As a result of their rebellion, God has driven them out of the land, away from the temple. And they now find themselves in this new community uh, in which Nebuchadnezzar, uh, this pagan king, is seeking to uh, create an assimilation program, you might say. To indoctrinate Israel's best and brightest in order to create the world that he is out to create. And because God is the one who's really in control of this story, from chapter 1, from the very beginning, we see that God gives Daniel and his friends wisdom and understanding and skill necessary to impress the king so that the king decides to, to put Daniel and his buddies on the payroll. The, the last two weeks, we've encountered episodes that distinguish not just Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel and his friends, but Nebuchadnezzar's pagan gods from the God of, of Israel. And so according to chapter 2, we, we find the king awakening from a dream that has him in a cold sweat, a, a dream that his pagan dream team is, is unable to interpret because in their own words, only the gods can reveal such things and the gods don't dwell with flesh. That's the futility of pagan religion. The beauty of Daniel chapter 2 is that in contrast to pagan gods, Daniel's God is a God who makes known, a God who reveals himself, a God who if you continue to read the scriptures and fast forward all the way through the New Testament, a God who not only dwells with flesh but a God who became flesh, namely Jesus We're told that Daniel's God, the God who makes known, reveals the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar bows at the feet of Daniel and declares the excellencies of Daniel's God. According to chapter 3, going back to last week, Daniel's three friends find themselves in a predicament. As a declaration of his own power, his own glory, King Nebuchadnezzar sets up a golden image on the Babylonian plain. And he calls everyone to bow down and worship this image. And for those who refuse to do so, what it looks like for them to take their lumps is essentially to be thrown into a blazing, fiery inferno. Daniel's three friends refuse to respond to the king's wishes. They're threatened with death by fire. Standing before this blazing inferno, they make this remarkable declaration. If you remember from last week, they say, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image That You have set up whether it be through deliverance or death. It doesn't matter We've seen the beauty and splendor of the one true God. He really is enough It's an incredible story of courage It's an incredible story of a group of men whose faith is not contingent on where the story goes But rather faith that's rooted in a God worthy of worship no matter what God does in fact rescue these boys It's an incredible act of deliverance And as they walk away from this blazing inferno without so much as a single uh, singed hair on their heads. And as the curtain opens on chapter 4, which is where we'll be this morning, the king opens his mouth to speak. And the words that roll off of his tongue are pretty shocking. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible... That Bible's yours for free. The church's gift to you. I've said this before. I'll say it again. We're not going to come hunt you down and demand your soul as payment for the book that you took from us. I know my last name is Vizini, but we don't have a, a mafia ministry in the church, so rest assured. Let me pray for us, and, and we'll jump in because we have much ground to cover. God, we love you. We thank you for your Word. What a gift! Thank you for the Book of Daniel, a book that many. Uh, even amongst the community of faith, cower away from in fear. It is a complex book, and yet there is much in this book of the Bible for us. It is your grace to us. This morning, Lord, I pray that uh, we would be comforted as we see that you truly are seated on your throne. I pray that we would be humbled as we come face to face with the reality that for most of us in this room, uh, we uh, oftentimes seek to build kingdoms for ourselves rather than Bending our knee to our good and gracious King. God, I pray that uh, we would be encouraged as we see Daniel uh, living this evangelistic life in the midst of a pagan wasteland, that God, you really do uh, change the hearts of men, uh, even those whose are the coldest, the stoniest. God, we love you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do these things in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives this morning. Uh, We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. If you hop in the plane for just a second, get high above ground level, looking down on the landscape of the book of Daniel, what you find is that chapter 2, going back to uh, the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's revealing of the interpretation of that dream, you, you experience a God who reveals Um, In fact, Nebuchadnezzar at the end of Daniel chapter 2 says this, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Daniel chapter 3 is about the God who rescues as God delivers Daniel's three friends from this blazing inferno. Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 3 says this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God? Daniel chapter 3, as we'll see this morning, is about the God who rules. Thank you, Jesus, for alliteration to make it so easy for us to remember all this, right? In fact, three times in this chapter, uh, we'll encounter the following phrase verses 17, 25, and 32. Say this, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Anytime you see a repetitive phrase in a particular uh, passage of scripture, uh, you're meant to pay attention. God's trying to communicate something to us. Namely, that uh, he is the, the one true king who is seated on his throne and all human authority and power is given by him. That's where we're going this morning. That's a truth that's meant to comfort us and to humble us. It's meant to comfort us in those moments in which it feels like God isn't seated on his throne, in the midst of those moments where it feels like everything has come unraveled and he's lost control of the pen that he's writing human history with. But it's also meant to humble us in moments in which we pridefully bind to the delusion that we are seated on the throne. And so with those things in your mind, let's dive into verse 1 and, and see what this story has to offer us. Beginning in verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, this is a strange start to chapter 4. If you've been a part of this series from the beginning... You know that the last three chapters begin with some sort of conundrum, right? Some sort of conflict, some sort of crisis that requires a, a resolution of sorts. In Daniel chapter 1, it was Daniel and his buddies seeking to remain faithful to God in the midst of a pagan wasteland in the king's assimilation program. In chapter 2, it was Daniel and his buddies on the chopping block in the wake of the dream that had the king in the cold sweat. In chapter 3, it was Daniel's three friends facing this blazing uh, inferno of a furnace in the wake of their refusal to bow down and worship the king's golden image. Now here in chapter 4, we begin with Nebuchadnezzar's praise of the God of Israel. It's really strange. There's no tension to be resolved in this chapter per se. Rather, as the audience, we're meant to ask the question, what in the world causes Nebuchadnezzar to praise the God of Israel in this unmistakable way? In other words, how did we get here? For those of you who like movies, maybe you can think of a couple of examples of movies that start off at the very end and then they flash back. Movies like Definitely Maybe or 500 Days of Summer. Or even uh, TV shows like Lost that give you kind of this storyline that catches you back up to how we got here in the first place. That's what chapter 4 is. If you remember, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar used that same phrase that we see here uh, in the first few verses of chapter 4. All peoples, all nations, all languages. But, but there it was used to summon people to bow down and worship his golden image. Now, in chapter 4, the same phrase is, is used to declare to the people of Babylon, of the Babylonian empire, the glory and sovereignty of God. And notice that it's not Daniel who tells us uh, about Nebuchadnezzar's praise of God. This is not third person. This is first person. This is the king himself. This is King Nebuchadnezzar's very own declaration of the excellencies of the one true God of the Bible. Again, we're meant to ask the question, how in the world did we get here? What, what, what in the world causes Nebuchadnezzar to praise the God of Israel in, in this unmistakable way? And the rest of this chapter answers that question. It's, it's flashback now from verse 4 on. Look at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. So, so far, so good. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So here we go again. It sounds a lot like chapter 2, right? goes on to say, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. So once again, though it didn't work the first time, the king goes to his pagan dream team before he goes to anyone else. This time he doesn't ask them to give him the contents of the dream, just the interpretation itself. But again, they fail to do what the king asks of them. And so, verse 8, at last, Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, that's his Babylonian name, after the name of my God and in whom the spirit of the holy gods dwells. And I told him the dream saying, "O Belteshazzar chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. So at this point in the story, the king's not there yet, right? He, he's still not singing the praises of Yahweh. He's still referring to Daniel by his Babylonian name, which is connected to Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian God. Not only that, he refers to Daniel as the one in whom the spirit of the holy gods plural, dwell. So according to verses 8 and 9, Nebuchadnezzar is still a polytheist. He's a worshiper of many gods. The king proceeds to tell Daniel the contents of his dream. Verse 10, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great and the tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So picture it. You have this gigantic tree that's, that's big enough to provide food and shade for all. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven So you have this supernatural being now, this angelic being in the wake of this vision of this massive tree. In verse 14, this angelic being proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field." So this gigantic tree with enough food and shade to provide for all is to be chopped down, causing all of these creatures that use it for provision and protection to scatter with nothing more than this this stump remaining. So you can just picture a towering tree in a forest being chopped down. If you live in the Peachtree City city limits, you know most of our trees are like seven, eight stories tall. You can imagine one of those bad boys coming down and just... A mass of squirrels and birds just scattering off into the, the distance here. goes on to say, the second part of verse 15. Let him, so now you have this personal pronoun. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. So there's a human element to this dream. All of a sudden, the the tree is humanized. The, The human being described here is to experience a major decline, both physically and mentally. Verse 17, this sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, the angelic beings. To the end that, okay, so here we go. Here's our purpose. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So the purpose of this dream and its fulfillment is really simple. You can get really bogged down in chapters like this in the Bible, but it's really simple, the purpose of this dream and its fulfillment. It's that man may know that God is the one seated on the throne. That's it. And that if any human being has any sort of power, any sort of authority in this world, it's because God gave it to him. It's because God gave it to her. Verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Again, still no singing of God's glory and sovereignty yet. Still the same polytheistic language of the holy gods, plural. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. So Daniel's deeply disturbed. What we find out uh, as we read verse 19 is this isn't just a dream, it's a nightmare. And the king answered and said, verse 19, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. In in other words, I don't wish this on you, King Nebuchadnezzar. And now he tells the king what the dream actually means. You, You can probably tell where this story is going, right? Verse 20, the tree you saw, this is Daniel speaking, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which the beast of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. That tree, verse 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. No surprise here, right? Nebuchadnezzar is, is the king of the Babylonian Empire, the most powerful man on the planet, the leader of the free world at this moment in human history, the one who offers provision and protection, both fruit and shade, to all who inhabit his kingdom. He's the magnificent tree. Be great if the dream ended there, right? Verse 23, Daniel goes on. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. Because the king saw the watchers declare this message, verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. So here we go. This is what the chopping down of this tree actually means. Second half of verse 24, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. There's that phrase again. Okay, now we see why Daniel's so bothered by this dream. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. The, the fact that Daniel himself is, is bothered, he could have easily thought, finally, this arrogant jerk has what's coming to him. Right? This is a, very much a love your enemies moment for Daniel, I would say. Remember, this is the king who destroyed Jerusalem. This is the king who plundered the temple of the Lord. This is the king who took Daniel and his friends away from the only place they had ever known. And yet Daniel shows concern for King Nebuchadnezzar. He's filled with compassion for this pagan man who deeply needs to have his heart awakened to the glory of the one true God. Talk about convicting, man. I don't know about you, but, but there are people, if I'm honest, who if God dealt them a bad hand, it would bother me a lot less than if he did it with other people. If ever there's a moment to be justified in celebrating the demise of another, it's in this moment for Daniel. Daniel. This man has taken everything from him and mocked his God in the process. Let me ask you this this morning. Who's your Nebuchadnezzar? Who's that person if, that if something terrible were to happen to them, you wouldn't be terribly bothered? Not only would you not lose sleep over it, it might bring you a little bit of joy in the process. Who's that enemy that you find it hard to love? I think Daniel chapter four is a reminder of the gospel in that there are no good guys and bad guys. There are only bad guys and Jesus who gets to ride in on a horse and save the day. We are all saved by grace. The foot of the cross is in fact level. So the question for us is, how might God be calling us to repent by loving those people rather than despising them? Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that he, the magnificent tree, will soon make his home among the birds and the beasts that once found shelter in his branches. Again, God is turning the tables in this moment. Verse 26. Let's continue on. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. In other words, though there's coming a judgment... It's not without grace. Nebuchadnezzar, yes, your pride is going to lead to a fall, but it won't be a total uprooting. A stump will remain. There will be hope for restoration on the other side of this judgment. Now think for a second. Let's, get it, let's put our historical goggles on for a moment and think about when this was written. This is written to a bunch of exiles who are in a pagan wasteland at this time who have been placed there because of their rebellion against God. Think about how this would have resonated with the Judeans. Through the prophet Isaiah, God told the Israelites that judgment was in fact coming. If you read Isaiah 6. Um, But he says in the wake of the rebellion like Nebuchadnezzar. They they would yes experience a fall. But Isaiah 6 tells us not without leaving a stump. A remnant of God's people that he would preserve by his grace. The, The exiles in Babylon would have taken comfort in knowing that. Though they find themselves in a pagan wasteland, in the midst of a rebellion against God, there is, in fact, hope. same thing is true for Nebuchadnezzar. Should he acknowledge that God is the only sovereign and that his power is given by God, he shall be restored. Verse 27, Daniel pleads with the king. Therefore, he says, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. In other words, humble yourself and and perhaps God won't have to humble you. For some of us, maybe that's where we find ourselves this morning. in, In this period in which God is graciously giving us time to turn to him in repentance. We're told that, Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, this is perhaps uh, the most uh, introspective, arrogant statement that's come out of the king's mouth thus far in this book of the Bible. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power... As a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar does in this moment what many of us might be inclined to do. He mistakes God's merciful postponement of judgment as an indicator that God's not going to do anything. God gives him a full year to humble himself. Twelve months. Yet he makes the most arrogant declaration that he could possibly make. Look at the me and the my in in that statement. I, I've built this mighty empire by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. You you could see where Nebuchadnezzar might struggle with visions of self-grandeur, right? I mean, after all, uh, standing on the rooftop of his royal palace, he had a view of one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. The hanging gardens, which he actually established for his wife. The visionary behind one of the seven wonders of the world. Not only that, uh, he was responsible for building what many consider to be another wonder of the known world at that time, the outer wall of Babylon, a wall so massively wide that a four-horse chariot could make a U-turn on it without toppling off the side. That's a big wall. Now, my guess is that None of us in this room is the brains behind one of the seven wonders of the world. If you are, I would love to meet you, take you out for coffee, hear that story, hear how you got in on that gig, what that looks like for you. But that's, that's not most of us in this room, right? But we, we all have our accomplishments that can easily lead to visions of self-grandeur. Whether it be our career success, our parenting success, our educational success. Success, our financial success, our success in relationships, and on and on we could go. Nebuchadnezzar looks out on the kingdom that in his mind, he deserves the credit for establishing. And he boasts in arrogance of his own power, his own glory, and his own majesty. Look what happens in verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate graft like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers. And his nails were like birds' claws. If ever there's a passage in scripture that declares unwaveringly that pride comes before the fall. Right, we see the king's pride in verse 30. And we see the king's fall here in Verse 33. This dream is meant to be a warning to Nebuchadnezzar, but he fails to heed that warning. And so at the height of his greatness, the king is cut down. This man who once ruled over the birds of the air and the beasts of the field finds himself among those very birds and beasts, driven away from Babylonian civilization, driven away from humanity in a sense, both mentally and physically. This is a dramatic humbling of a man who thinks he's a god. Some scholars think this was a seven-year period of of judgment. Others think that the seven periods of time in verse 32 is simply a way of saying until uh, the fullness of your humbling takes place. But regardless, we're told that. Notice the, the shift here in verse 34 as this story ends. At the end of the days, we're back to first person again. I, Nebuchadnezzar. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is a drastic work of God in this man's life. Notice a few things in these verses. One, notice the shift in the king's gaze. He goes from standing on the rooftop of his palace, looking down on everyone else, looking down on what he created for the sake of his own glory. He goes from looking down to looking up and acknowledging that there is one true king in heaven. And not just the shift of his gaze, notice the shift in the king's mind. Twice in verses 34 and 36, the king says, my reason returned to me. I couldn't think straight. I wasn't in my right mind. But now I'm thinking clearly. Let me just say this. It is in perfect alignment with human rationality to praise the God of heaven, according to Daniel chapter 4. For for those of us who struggle with this idea that there's anything intellectually sensible about Christianity, and believe me, I've been there, I grew up as a skeptic, doubting, questioning the Bible, questioning the Christian worldview, Christianity is not just a bunch of gullible optimism. Christianity is a thinking faith. Nebuchadnezzar finds himself in his right mind, which coincides with his praise, honor, and blessing the God of heaven. It reminds me of, the demoniac in Mark chapter 5. You guys know that story? One of my favorite stories in the Gospels. If ever I could have been with Jesus for one day, that's the, that's the scene I want to see go down. I want to go with Jesus, hang out in a graveyard, watch God bruising himself with stones, chained to a rock, and watch this conversion take place. That's what happened for this man. These demons are cast from him and, and we're told that the man was then clothed and in his right mind after encountering Jesus. That to worship the God of heaven is to be in our right mind. In fact, it's delusional to think like Nebuchadnezzar that we are the center of the universe. That's delusional. Nebuchadnezzar goes from a delusional, prideful man to a man of reason who gives God glory. But not just a shift in the king's gaze and a shift in the king's thinking, but also a shift in the king's language. Remember, this was a man who who had used the phrase throughout this chapter, the holy gods, polytheistic language. And now he's declaring the king, singular, of heaven. That's a significant shift. In fact, if you go back and look at the chapters leading up to chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 had declared to Daniel, your God. In chapter 3, it was the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their God. But now in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar himself, first person, praises the God of Israel, the God of heaven. That Daniel 4 isn't simply the story of God bringing down the gauntlet on the proud who oppose him. Daniel 4 is the story of an unbelieving king who comes to know the one true God. These are the final words of Nebuchadnezzar recorded in all of scripture. It's quite amazing. They're, they're, They're singing of the praises of the one true God. That Daniel was faithful for all those years in a pagan wasteland. Think about it. Most of of Daniel's days are not uh, days of interpreting the king's dreams. Days spent dealing with fiery furnace moments. Most of Daniel's days are are spent at the right hand of the king submitting to the king's request. Just just living out the the simplicity of of a life that honors Yahweh. And, And as a result of that, Nebuchadnezzar has a collision with the one true God. Whether this is a converted man or not, it's up for debate. He's most certainly a changed man. He's encountered the living God in a way that's actually brought him to his knees. In a way that has him going back to the beginning of the chapter, declaring uh, the excellencies of the one true king to all peoples, all nations, all languages that dwell in all the earth. This is a remarkable story of God's sovereignty and grace. It's really beautiful. But I think the question for us this morning, similar to last week, is very simple. The question that begs to be asked is this: So what? I mean, what does this have to do with me? What what am I supposed to take away from a passage of scripture like this? Let me just mention two things. Number one, we can find comfort in a God who rules and reigns over all of creation. This might be the only time that you hear me say this in this series. But I think it could be warranted based on a passage like this. God is not sweating it from his throne in the heavenlies over who wins the election come November 8th. He's not. If you're uh, never Trump, never Hillary, like the world's going to crash and burn. The apocalypse, Armageddon is coming. You know, November 8th, if it doesn't work out the way I think it should work out. Daniel chapter 4 says something very different ralph davis in his commentary says this be encouraged by this quote human governments are interim arrangements that god appoints to fill space until the power and glory of jesus's kingdom human rulers tyrannical or democratic are god's lackeys who have tenure only at his pleasure you believe that Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was only able to besiege Jerusalem, Daniel chapter 1, because God gave him the victory. Nebuchadnezzar was only able to understand his dream, Daniel chapter 2, because God revealed the meaning through Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar failed to singe a single hair on the head of Daniel's friends, Daniel chapter 3, because God delivered them through the fire and the flame. That's your God, Christian God's redemptive historical narrative will not be derailed by human rulers and powers and authorities. He's the capital K king. There is not another. All human authority and power is given by the one true God. No matter how powerful a king is, every king rules under the sovereignty and authority of God. And we're not just talking about comfort with respect to human rulers. And I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know if you're going through a crisis at this moment in your life, a difficult season, where you're experiencing the tangible effects of living in a fallen, broken world. But we're meant to experience comfort in the midst of all of those things as well. That that God is on his throne. When everything seems to come unraveled, he actually has a purpose in all of it. And in fact, it's in those moments when God shows us most who we are and who he is, is it not? Going back to last week. In the midst of the hard times, Daniel chapter 4 is a call to be comforted in knowing that God hasn't all of a sudden been dethroned in those moments in your life. He's still there. He still has the pen in hand. He still sits with crown and scepter, and he has a plan in all of it. That's the first thing. We can find comfort in a God who rules and reigns over all of creation. The second thing is this. We must renounce pride, humble ourselves, and look upward to the one true king like Nebuchadnezzar. Most people, religious or not, if we're honest, we find pride to be offensive, don't we? I mean, most of us don't like hanging out in the room with an arrogant jerk. That's not what we're magnetized to. We have an intuitive understanding that pride is vile, and yet it's uh, likely the very vice that we're most blind to in our own lives. I would say it this way. The hardest place for us to see pride is in the mirror. If we're honest... We're all a bunch of Nebuchadnezzars at certain moments in our lives, warring against the desire for self-glorification, the approval of others. And and there's, of course, this danger. Maybe you're thinking in your mind right now, I think I want to repent so that I can avoid the fall that comes after the pride. And and that's certainly a part of this story. But don't miss the bigger bigger element here. More important than avoiding the fall is, is that we miss out on intimacy with God when we walk in arrogance, because pride and intimacy with God cannot coexist. Those two cannot exist together. You may remember the C.S. Lewis quote from the Proverbs series the week we talked about humility. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes a chapter on pride, and he says this. He says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that... And therefore, know yourself as nothing in comparison. You do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people like Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Pride not only endangers us of falling, it endangers us of missing God altogether. And so I think Daniel chapter 4 invites us to imagine a life in which the gospel so shapes our identity that we're able to experience true freedom from bondage to our fragile human egos. Doesn't that sound nice? The freedom to no longer look down on others comparing ourselves to anyone and everyone around us, but instead to lift our eyes to heaven and, and get a glimpse of God in all of his splendor, in all of his glory, in all of his grace. See, here's the beauty of the gospel in Daniel chapter 4. There's another king who was brought down from the heights of glory to the depths of shame. Another king who could have surveyed the entire cosmos. Not just the Babylonian empire, but all of creation. And declared, is not this creation which I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Yet rather than exalting himself, this king willingly humbled himself setting aside his crown and scepter and entering the slums of human history. Philippians chapter two, Paul says it this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death On a cross. Though Jesus did nothing to deserve it, he died a criminal's death. The most humiliating of deaths at that point in human history. Death by crucifixion. There's no greater act of humility in all the world. Yet here's the difference. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus' humbling wasn't forced upon him because of his arrogance. Rather, it was a voluntary act meant to redeem us of our arrogance. Jesus condescended. He lived the perfect, humble life, the sinless life that we could never live. He humbled himself, died a criminal's death, the death that we deserve to die. Jesus was counted proud so that we, the proud, might be counted humble. That's crazy to think about. That when God looks at you, if you're a Christian, he declares, he reckons you to be perfectly humble. Not because you are, but because Jesus is for you. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Especially for the proud in this room like me. You could say it this way. God became man to redeem a world filled with men seeking to become gods. Isn't that glorious? When we fix our eyes on King Jesus, it has a way of melting our pride, does it not? Seeing his nail-scarred hands reminds us of two things. One, our deep depravity, our deep need for a savior... And two, his deep love for us. That we're far more sinful than we ever imagined. The rabbit hole of depravity and sin goes far deeper than we think it does. And yet we're far more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared dream. That's the gospel. And here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy upside down nature of the kingdom of God. Those who humble themselves before the one true king will be exalted in the end. Philippians chapter two goes on to say, therefore, in light of Christ's death on behalf of sinners, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father that on the other side of Jesus's humiliation was an exaltation. And Jesus sets the pattern for us, which is why James chapter 4 verse 10 could say this. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In a moment, we're going to take communion. This is a meal for Christians. If you're a Christian, you can come down momentarily. Take the bread, dip it in the cup. The bread representing the broken body of Jesus. The cup representing his shed blood. Let me just say this. um, If you are a follower of Christ in this room, as you prepare to come take and receive of the elements, um, I would would encourage you and challenge you in a couple of ways as you you sit and kind of meditate on what the Lord may have for you in Daniel chapter 4. Ask yourself whether there is a need for a humbling to take place in your life. Plead with the Holy Spirit to do that work if that's true. Ask yourself, is there a need for a comforting in the midst of an unraveled moment, is there a deep need to truly believe in the midst of, of a moment of doubt, a moment of unbelief, that, that God really is seated on the throne, that he, he is enthroned, he, he does have the crown, he does have the scepter in hand, he does have the pen in hand that he's authoring human history with, and he can be trusted with, with my life. Or maybe if you look at it from Daniel's perspective, maybe in, in the next few minutes, Uh, You need to sit with God and and ask him to help you to believe that he is at work in and through you, even in the midst of those most mundane of moments, like he was in Daniel's life, to point Nebuchadnezzar to the one true God. And if you're not a Christian, I would implore you to come to King Jesus, to fall at his feet, to trust him as Savior and King. But But I do understand this, that... That there is a sense in which conversion is not a journey. There is a moment in which new birth happens when we're brought from spiritual death to life. And yet we do see in the first four chapters of the book of Daniel that there is a journey taking place for this man. That for for some of you, if you come in and you're completely jaded toward Jesus and the bride of Christ and you walk away half jaded, glory to God. If you come in an atheist and you walk away an agnostic going maybe there is a God, hallelujah. Hallelujah if you come in and you question uh, whether God could possibly be good because of what you're going through in your life and you walk away going I think he is good even in this glory to God i I hope that you see if you've been around long enough at this point and you're not a follower of Jesus yet that this is a church that you can wrestle with those doubts in the midst of that That you're surrounded with the people who will walk with you through that, who will dialogue with you through those things. That community groups are not just for followers of Jesus. If you're a skeptic, if you're an unbeliever, you can come share a living room with people who love and follow Jesus and you can ask your questions. You can step into the midst of a bunch of Daniels and Shadrachs, Meshachs and Abednegoes as Nebuchadnezzar in a living room once a week and ask the hard questions. We're not scared of it. We're excited that you're a part of this, if that's you. But again, I would implore you even right now in this moment to see that the God of Israel is the one true king as we see throughout the course of the book of Daniel thus far and that you would bend your knee to him, that you would become a follower of Jesus today. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.